0: This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org.
1: So good evening. Um, I just first of all want to thank um, the Lannan Foundation and, and Jordan for this extraordinary opportunity. Any chance to talk to Boots Riley? Like I told Boots I would, I would walk across the country, um, you know, I'd ride my bike maybe. Um, The last time we were actually in public conversation was at UCLA on the night of the midterm elections uh, last November, and so, of course, here we are on the anniversary of 9-11, the the anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center, uh, and Booth may have a story to share about that, by the way. Um, Also the anniversary of the U.S. overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, uh, and we're also having this conversation in New Mexico which is one of the many ground zeroes in what, for Native peoples, have been five centuries of 9-11s. Um, and I want to acknowledge that we're on Native soil right now. <laughs> and I do hope that tonight, you know, in our conversation, we, you know, and just all of you here today, will recognize and acknowledge the many millions gone as a consequence of ongoing terrorism. So let me begin. Okay, by reading an excerpt from a poem. Um, your thumbs may be opposable. I'm opposed to being under them. And your communication may be complex, colored, coded. But the closer the ocean gets to cauldron, the more specious your classification be. If you love your species more than your species, you're out of order. Now, these two stanzas are from Evie Shockley's poem, Topsy's Notes on Taxonomy from her amazing book, Semi-Automatic. And I start with it because this was actually the epigraph to the piece I wrote on Boots' amazing masterwork, Sorry to Bother You, for Boston Review, where my editor's like, you can't use that and just cut it. So I'm giving it to you tonight because (laughs) for me, the poem perfectly encapsulates the film's most fundamental message. Now true, The ocean cauldron refers to the transatlantic kidnapping and transport of Africans, also known as the Mafa, or the catastrophe, but in many ways, the global neoliberal order is the contemporary cauldron. Racial classification is still with us, not merely as counterfeit categories of difference, but as markers of hierarchy, the dividing line between official humanity and and its others. In both worlds, cash rules everything, including thought. But Shockley's fictional character Topsy overturns this logic and exposes its contradictions. If you love your species more than your species, you're out of order. This is precisely the lesson of Sorry to Bother You. Cash Green and his would-be comrades concluded that this money-loving system was out of order, and they set out to make a new order, to level it up. The poem not only captures the themes of the film, but for me, it really captures you know, Boots' entire life and work. Boots Riley is one of the most consequential artists and intellectuals of our generation, period. And that's saying a lot, because I, I know that, because you know, there is no shortage of remarkable thinkers, creators and, creators, and activists. But as far as I'm concerned, there's no one like Boots who can do it all and do it well who can write, rap, produce, direct, critique, debate, organize, and crack you up to the point of your back of the head is cramping. Um, (laughs) And rare is the artist intellectual today with deep links to radical social movements, with roots in aggrieved communities, who is not afraid of the people. Here, I think of ancestors like Amiri Baraka, uh, Jane Cortez, Tony Cade Bambara, Audre Lorde, and those who are still with us, like Sonia Sanchez, Angela Davis, Tom Morello, Jake Farr, uh, the artists associated with Decolonize This Place, and others. Boots isn't in it to be famous. He called himself a revolutionary when it was not a popular thing to do, and still not. Uh, and he walked, the, he walked the talk. He organized with the Progressive Labor Party in its offshoot, the International Committee Against Racism, protested police violence, participated in the founding convention of the Black Radical Congress in 1998, became a fixture at Occupy Oakland, who organized migrant farm workers in Central California, worked in telemarketing, loaded packages onto UPS planes, co-founded the Young Comrades, whose members frequently appeared before Oakland City's council um, to protest police harassment and the city's anti-cruising laws. He did all of this as he founded and performed as a lead rapper and producer of The Coup, which he created in 1991 with a couple of fellow UPS workers. That same year, he helped found the Mau Mau Rhythm Collective, whose explicit political agenda led them to do benefits and support work for groups like the Women's Economic Agenda Project, Cop Watch, the Campaign to Free Geronimo Pratt, among many other things. The Coup's debut CB, Kill My Landlord, 1993, really put them on the map. And this is when I was hooked, I have to say. Um, I'd never heard anything like it, you know. And I'm a little older than, Coop, than, than, uh, than Boots. Um, actually, quite a bit older, now I think about it. I'm an old person. Um, <laughs> okay, I can deal with my crisis right now. Um, <laughs> but I played I play that record, that CD, so much that my three-year-old daughter could recite all the lyrics to Dig It. <laughs> Um, this was followed by Genocide and Juice, which was brilliant for so many reasons, least of which uh, for the way he spun lyrics that exposed and satirized the operations of power in songs like Fat Cat's Bigger Fish and Pimps. And then there was Steel this album, whose powerful single, Me and Jesus, the Pimp in a 79 Granada last night, not only displayed Boots' brilliant knack for storytelling, but inspired Mooney Morris's novel Too Beautiful for Words. Soon followed by controversial, the controversial party music, which incidentally, for lots of reason, reasons, it's the first time I'd ever heard authentic character acting on a hip-hop record. You Just go back and listen to it. Um, Pick a Bigger Weapon, and Sorry to Bother You, which was going to be the soundtrack to the film, uh, which came out in 2012, and of course the film was released, finally completed, in t- uh, six years later. And he kept his hands in many projects, including the Street Sweeper Social Club, a band he formed with Rage Against the Machines, Tom Morello. When Riley wasn't making, moving uh, boxes, moving masses, he studied film at San Francisco State University's School of Cinema, wrote screenplays, and began a long journey that led to Sorry to Bother You and various film and television projects that are in the works now. So we're here tonight, not just to celebrate a remarkable career, we could do that, but to talk about the role of art and artists in fighting for our lives and our futures. Boots Boots is an artist and a thinker we desperately need now, not only because fascism is on the rise here and around the world, not only because more and more working people live in a state of precarity and debt while the rich get richer, not only because black, brown, and native peoples continue to confront old and new forms of genocide, dispossession, statelessness, and unfreedom, Not only because the bodily integrity and autonomy and safety of cisgender women, queer and trans people are threatened every day. Not only because we face the existential threat of the end of life as we all know it, but because we don't have good answers. We don't have effective responses. We don't necessarily have powerful movements. Um, And he has produced a body of work that reveals the crises and contradictions and consequences of capitalism, lays bare its operations and the workings of power and then proposes, imagines, demands good answers. Boots has always understood that dark times are also revolutionary times. He knew this having been raised by committed revolutionaries living and fighting in and with communities for whom times were always pretty dark. He made art with the intention of finding answers, inspiring movement. As he put it when he accepted the Independent Spirit Award, The struggle we need is one that gives us a different system. We need real democracy, and that's democracy of the economy. Some people call that communism. I don't care what you call it. You can call it cupcakes. (laughs) The people should control the wealth that they create with their labor. But he understands that art by itself doesn't make it happen. Movements do. People do. People in struggle do. Conscious masses in motion is a force with a quote from one of my favorite cuts by the crew, if you want that door to open, you're gonna have to use your shoulder. Please join me in welcoming Boots Riley. (laughs) What's up? Okay, so there are people there. I couldn't see anything; <laughs> just darkness. Okay, well, let's let's begin at the beginning. I mean, we have a lot to talk about tonight. We've got seventy-five minutes, and the counter, the, the counter is about to start. So, before we get into the questions about art and politics and what it is to be done, um, let's begin uh, by talking about your story. I mean, I deliberately left a lot of biographical information out of my introduction. Um, Because I really want you to share your story. In other words, how did you become an artist and a revolutionary? Talk about your family, your upbringing, your influences.
0: Okay. So so when I was 12, I wanted to be Prince. (laughs) You know, I didn't... I I wanted to to be everything that he... Besides the good music, it was clear to me that he was doing something important. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I knew. And I wanted to be him, but I didn't want to practice as much as it would have taken (laughs) to be him. Uh, A couple years later, um, when I was 14, um, a a youth organizer pulled up in front of my house with a van full of 14-year-old girls. Mm. And uh, he was like, hey, do you want to go to the beach? <laughs> and the answer was, do I want, as a 14-year-old boy, do I want to go to the beach with a, in a van full of 14-year-old girls? <laughs> yes. And he's like, cool. Well, we're going to go to the Watsonville Cannery Workers Strike first, and then we're going to go to the beach. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and
1: you live in the Bay Area. Yeah. Right
0: okay. Yeah, this is in Oakland. And um, so I went, and when I got in the van... Um these girls they, they, they knew about what was happening in the world, right they, they, they could talk about the things that I kind of ignored a little bit from the news and they, they, they had opinions on them, and you know, it was clear that they, they, they had a construct to, to add all this information into, and I, I just wanted to. You know, I, wa- I wanted some of that. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be... And, and so, it, you know, what they had was they had the idea that they could change things. So this information became, became important. Well, um, I went from there to get involved with the, the, that summer with the, the, uh, the a summer project in which we helped out uh, farm workers in the Central California Valley to organize what they would call the uh, Anti-Racist Farm Workers Union mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I joined uh, joined uh, Progressive Labor Party, which was a radical uh, organization, a communist organization. And during that period in my life, I kind of had shunned the period before, which was, I want to be a musician, because right. I want to, you know, and, and, and I looked at that as being an individualist endeavor, right? Mm. But it was years later after that that I realized it was part of the same thing. Because now once I joined an organization, I felt like I could have an effect on the world. Whereas when you're, you know, most of us are watching TV, in life we're we're already told that we aren't shit, that we don't mean anything. And, but the people that are important are on TV. Mm -hmm. We should pay attention to them. And so it's natural to want your life to mean something, right? right? And and so I got, I realized that, you know, I, I felt that my life was meaning something because I could be part of something that would change the way right. things are. Right, right. And 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 that experience that summer, and I did it for a few summers in a row, but that experience that summer was very uh, formative because. These were. This was led by former uh, Mexic- students from Mexico City in '68 who had come up, joined Cesar Chavez's group and broke mm-hmm. off from them. Mm-hmm. Because he was. They were more radical, but they came with a revolutionary vision, which said, "Look, we're going to organize a militant uh, labor movement here." and it's going to grow, and here are the steps, and that's going to turn into a revolutionary movement. Right.
1: So, so now, where was your parents in this? Because your dad has a history So, CORE.
0: Yeah, mom. so my, my, father had, my father got involved with the NAACP when he was 12 in Durham, North Carolina, and then soon uh, after that joined CORE and was part of uh, organizing some of the first mm-hmm. sit-ins that happened in North Carolina. Um, he wasn't there, but he was part of organizing them. And um, CORE moved him to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, he then got involved in uh, the San Francisco State Strike, which is the, w- of 1968, which right. is the one that created School of Ethnic National Studies, Studies yeah. the first one in the US, and, um, and, and got involved in more radical organizations, got involved in SDS and Progressive Labor Party. Mm-hmm. So, but by the time I was eight, as happens, him and my, he met my mother at San Francisco State, and and they moved to Detroit, um, and where he became, moved to Chicago, then to Detroit, where he was the full-time organizer for Progressive Labor Party, um, uh, until we moved back to, we moved to Oakland when I was six. And, but by that point, He was, uh, they were burnt out. Mm -hmm. He went back to, you know, as happens in those organizations, splits happen and people fight each other and all those sorts of things. And uh, he went back to law, went back to school and became a lawyer. By the time I was, when I turned eight, he had become a lawyer. Um, And so I knew that they had been involved in something that was rebellious. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know, you know, you're too young to, I knew, I remember him coming home with his um, ribs bandaged up when I was five and I was asking, well, what happened? And he just said, matter of factly, oh, we went to Chicago to fight the Klan. Mm -hmm. And one of them them, uh, blindsided me with a two by four. Mm. And, that was that, just on with the day, <laughs> like it was regular. And, um, and, and so I knew that they had been involved. So when I then later got involved with the same organization, which he wasn't in, which was maybe even stickier than being involved with some mm-hmm. new thing, um, I knew that at the very least I was, didn't have parents that would be like, what are you doing?
2: Right. <laughs> Don't be
0: involved in that. His main, um, his main complaint, because when he found out I did join Progressive Labor Party, his main complaint was like he called them in for a meeting and said that they were being liberal because I don't even read, and he wouldn't have let me in the, in the party when wow. he was in. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his main complaint, was that I wasn't <laughs> radical enough. So,
2: so
1: okay, I don't want to leave this, because this you, you, because I actually have another question, but so at what point did he come to terms with the fact that, you know, you were an authentic, genuine revolutionary?
0: Oh, I think it was when he had, you know, like I said, he, so, so my father has gotten back involved in, right. and, and, and has like, for instance, he's more involved in Black Lives Matter than I am, and he's the lawyer that gets everybody right. off for every radical protest, but this was a period where you know he was not as involved mm-hmm. in stuff and you know he had had this 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 trip plan where we were going to rent an RV and me and my brother and him alone we were going to go up to Canada to the world's fair or something like that and i was like i'm not going i'm going to the farm workers mm. and um yeah and i think uh i think he he, he just saw that as like an adult choice. Mm, Steve. Yeah.
1: Well, you have um, an interesting background as a kid. I mean, most of us know about you with the coup, fully formed in music, but you also have a theater background, going back to the I know that you, you hung out with the Oakland uh, Ensemble Theater and your grandmother used to run
0: it. Yeah, so, so my grandmother ran the Oakland Ensemble Theater in the 70s and 80s. Now, I, I didn't really see that as something cool. Mm-hmm. He, you know, because a lot of times plays are people on the couch arguing with each other. <laughs> the sound of a door slamming when they right. walk out. But one day, one day they did Flash Gordon mm. and it was, in, it was like in the round. And you know they had people like sliding on wires and something trying to look like a laser, and I, I was just blown away. I was like, "This is you know." It opened my mind up. So,
1: so how old were you? Probably.
0: I must have only been nine mm-hmm. or ten, um, and in and, and 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 so then later when I did uh, go do the farm worker work. This was in Delano and McFarland, where there had already been a legacy of Teatro Campesino.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And we had heard about that. So, you know, um, we were trying to do like little plays that were very corny and on the nose. And, um, but just the idea that you could do theater for that reason, you know, stuck to me. And so at the same time, I was writing plays at Mm -hmm. school, and, uh, I, and, I been, and I joined the Black Repertory Theater, which was based in, in Berkeley, and there would be, you know, and I don't even think we actually put on our plays. We worked on plays for a mm-hmm. long time, and we helped, you know, like these uh, one-person shows that would come in. The one person that would come in all the time was Roger Guinevere Smith mm-hmm. doing Frederick right, Douglass. Right. And, uh, and so I think all of that led me to think, well, maybe I could do theater, but this is at the Black Repertory Theater, the theater was like as big as this stage, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, it's going to be hard to bring the revolution 40 people at a time.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that was around the time when, 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 uh, when Spike Lee was getting big. Right. And I looked at his... And there's a big theatrical quality to... Mm-hmm definitely to what he does. And not to mention that he's a, a young black man doing it. So, you know, I, I was like, wow, I could actually maybe do it with film. And there was the story of him doing it with $100,000, the first film. And so it, it seemed like something that could be done. So I, I went to San Francisco State right. for film. So you,
1: so you were thinking about this in high school. To go to film school in college.
0: Yeah, I mean, by you know, I think also because I was in high school, getting radicalized. You're like fig- figuring out how can we bring the fire? How can mm-hmm. this like? There's no like measuredness or you know or you know patience about it. Like you're frustrated with everybody, like you know that that that's doing it. Like why is this not out there more? Why are we not? Um, why are we not um, reaching more people?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, I was thinking of ways that you know uh, these ideas could get out there in, right. a, in a large way. And mind you, like this is the 80s, and I did wasn't finding this politic at all in any poli- uh, any popular culture. The closest thing I got was uh, was Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. And so, and that was obviously very inspiring as well. So, and at the same time, I'm doing music. So, um, went to school and then we happened to be where every record label wanted, needed a group from. Because corporations are stupid, they, 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 you know, like if somebody has a green jacket Mm -hmm. and they have a hit record, they'll be like, put everybody in green jackets, (laughs) right? Right? (laughs) And so... (laughs) Because there had been a few groups with hits Mm -hmm. from Oakland, every record label was like, we need a group from Oakland. And we just happened to be out there at the time um, using skills that I had learned from organizing, which was wheat pasting posters, Mm -hmm. just everywhere. Like nobody, you know, like nobody had heard the coup. But everybody had seen the poster. <laughs> and they were like, what the hell is what the hell is the coupe? Like, what? Like, and, and so when we did put a tape out, there just happened to be one week where we had sold a lot of tapes, and that was the week that the record label came through. Right. So and who came up with the name? Uh, me. So
1: when you formed the coup, actually, I'm going to jump to this other question because I'm really interested in this Issue because the late 1980s was an interesting, and in early 90s is an interesting period for hip hop, you know, it's it's at least a year plus. Well, oh.
0: I also want to put this into context because I can't really see out there, so I don't know the ages of everybody. Yeah, I know I can't see anything. But it was, oh, <laughs> okay, so we, in like, during this time, it was like 89, 90, 91, and there'd be like a well-known police killing,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: And this is before Rodney King and everything. We'd fly a neighborhood and, 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 and work on it for two weeks to have a demonstration in front of the police station. And there'd be four people that came, right? right? One of them being related to one of us that
2: <laughs> threw it.
0: And, and we'd have meetings afterward trying to figure out how to sum it up as a victory, Right. And that was where where like movements felt like they were at. I don't know if that was true. You know, obviously there were other things going on in New York and things like that. But that was where where things were at. So for me, getting these ideas out there on a bigger platform was, in my mind, the only way that to to um, build a movement.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before I get to that, just one small thing. Um, So the 1980s were interesting because there were so many left organizations. It's like flowered. I mean, but of course, there are no big organizations. A lot of small, I mean, if you just start doing the alphabet, this, you know, PLP, CWP, RLP. RLP. And
0: and what what I didn't understand at the time was this was really the, like, so the people that were there maybe when you and I -hmm. got involved, they were the folks that still hung on. Right. Right? There was the the, the beginning of the new left in the 60s, you had various people come in that were maybe, I don't know, were average everyday people getting more involved in things. And with all the splits and everything that happened, the folks that were still around were the hardcore, the hardline Mm -hmm. folks. Right, right. And I didn't understand that, and so, but, but there was a, a different tenor to what was happening, and I believe maybe a lot of those folks weren't the best uh, at social interaction, mm-hmm. right? And <laughs> I, they, I could attest to that. Yeah, <laughs> and and they were holding on to an era that had passed. Right. Lucky for me that I had. Got into that to see some of that, right? Right, and 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 so there, those ways of being. Even though there were more groups, they were way less visible, right? Than maybe somebody would be now, uh, trying to put, uh, trying to do campaigns, and right?
1: Like that. Well, I th- I think it's pretty um, interesting coincidence that the late '80s, early '90s, we see you know hip hop's over a decade old. Um, and of course, even longer than that, given some stuff that you've said about you know its roots in bone and Street rhymes, But that's the moment when there's so many really more explicit political artists. Like you mentioned Public Enemy, X-Clan, Too Black, Too Strong, just um, all these organizations, all these, these artists. But one of the differences is that a lot of these, organiz- a lot of these artists don't necessarily have connections to social movements, to organizations, with some exceptions, um, you all formed the Mau Mau Rhythm Collective, which is a way of connecting the music and the art to yeah. the streets. One, why did you do that? And what were you trying to accomplish? And what did you learn about linking you know, creative production?
0: Mm-hmm. So really, what, we created the Mau Mau Rhythm Collective, and it was a retreat. It was us like trying to uh, not organize. Like there were a few of us, like a bunch of folks that, even though I was only 19 and 20, mm-hmm. by this time I had been involved in stuff mm-hmm. for four or five years, which is a lifetime at that age. And um, many, a lot of us were kind of burnt out and we were like, we're gonna make a cultural organization, right? And that was, it, when we started it, it was just gonna be a cultural organization that had uh, had radical ideas, so there were, you know, I was from PLP. There were some other people from uh, AAPRP mm-hmm. and uh, All African People's Socialist Party, which is also right. known as Uhuru, right. and 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 some other children of Panthers that right, were involved. Right.
1: And AAPRP is All African People's Revolutionary Party. That
0: people yeah. who don't know. And and so these were people that had been burnt out from those organizations, and we were all artists. So we were like, we just want to do art. This was our sort of way. And we started passing out flyers and getting people involved in events. Pretty soon, we had 500 people in the organization. Hmm. And some of these were high school students who were like, okay, we because we kept doing these shows that were called hip-hop edutainment concerts, and which we stole edutainment from KRS-One and all that. But some of the folks involved were like, Okay, we're going to keep talking about police brutality and we're, you know, we're doing all these, you know, what are we going to do? Are we just going to throw shows? And so it was some of the new people that came along that kind of snapped us back Mm
2: -hmm. into
0: reality. And then it became kind of a, you know, then 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 we started connecting, reaching out to organizations and being Mm -hmm. part of campaigns and figuring out how we could use that art with the campaign because what I also, because of that, what I also started noticing was we had that period where there was public enemy, X-Clan, um, a, a few poor righteous teachers, right. a few other groups, and, and it, there was a backlash to it because they put this art out there that talked about problems. Mm-hmm and made you feel like the music was the answer. Right. And I think, and, and, and there, there was even a dress code to part of it. We all had like the African medallions and all of that. But I think what happened for a lot, it, it, for a, a lot of people, how they would have termed it is, we want some music that's more quote unquote real mm-hmm. and how that kind of that the, the quote unquote real music got denigrated by some writers was that oh this is just gangster stuff mm-hmm. right but what they were talking about is that this music that was supposedly somehow conscious was not connected to anything material that could change anyone's lives so you could have the medallion on you could listen to fight the power but you're going to go home right. and you don't have any food in the refrigerator Right. And so people started kind of rebelling against that because this song over here, though, it says you can sell this rock and make ten dollars. And it was true. Mm -hmm. It was connected to something material, a material movement. And, you know, and, and so that ends up being the problem with art that, you know, even, you know, wants to be radical. Is if there is no movement for people to do anything with, right. then it can cause a backlash of other kind of art that is connected to a more right wing movement.
1: Right. Now, did you all talk about this
0: then? Yeah. Yeah. We. You know. We had a matter of fact. We used to. I used to. Uh, I was at San Francisco State, and I was much smaller than I am now. And uh, somehow we would get on, and, and my friend. Uh, Dave was also small like me, but somehow we would get to be Chuck D's security when he would come <laughs> to speak at San Francisco State. And um, we would just be his security so we could argue with him mm-hmm. in the van. And, um, and
1: what would you talk about?
0: Um, we talk about the need for, you know, like, uh, again, w- you know, w- 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 we would jump to the need for a revolution, and we'd say, well, we need a revolution where the working class uh, overthrows the ruling class. And Chuck's uh, viewpoint was, you know, he would kind of not really answer, but he'd say, like, you're not ready for that, you know? (laughs) Uh, But what's funny is that then years later, when the coup came out on the national stage, you know, I saw him for the first time, and this was years later. My oh. hairstyle had changed. I, mm-hmm. You know, I grew facial hair and all that. And um, he was like San Francisco State.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because we had just hounded yeah, him so much. That. And, but, but the, 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 the uh, you know, and there was no reason to argue with Chuck D except for right. we want to talk to Chuck D. Right, um, right,
1: right. But, you know, it's, it's, but I really want you to talk a little bit about you know, the process of having these debates, looking at the political situation, coming out of four or five years of organizing, and then committing to making this extraordinary music, where musically, um, what the coup was able to do was so sophisticated and grounded and, and very much connected to people. I mean, if you, if you take the lyrics out, yeah. connected to people. But then you, you wrote these lyrics that are not preachy. They're not trying to beat you down. They are both narratives of everyday life, but also these like hilarious exposés of things that actually are not always funny. Mm-hmm. You know. So how did you... I mean, how much of that preparation led you to that? And what were you trying to accomplish in creating that work, that early work?
0: Well, I'll say part of it is this, that, like I said, I, I, when I started getting... Uh, radicalized, there were a lot of old school mm-hmm. um, organizers around. Some of these folks were probably in their seventies, in the eighties, right? And and you know, like old Jewish dudes from New York, like right. Milt and Mort, and yeah. all that. And um, and then old British dudes that had been involved with minor stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I remember, like one this old British dude would be like you know, like, how are you going to get a man to go on strike with you if you can't have a pint with Mm -hmm. him, Mm -hmm. right? And then, um, and then all the, the, and then like the old Jewish communists would always be telling, it would just be like you think they're telling jokes, but they're just talking about what they think, right? Right? (laughs) And, 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 And really what it is is that, it's it, that, that comedy, tragedy, and analysis are all kind of it's the same thing, right. Mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, um, if, you're, if I'm going to tell you my analysis of how capitalism works, I'm going to leave out certain details and talk about the important contradictions that I think are there. And these are the contradictions we need to pay attention to, mm-hmm. right? So I'm doing some editing, and, and I'm... Um, heightening that contradiction for you. That's exactly what you do, you know, in a dramatic work. And and it's exactly what comedy is and what tragedy is. And um, I never didn't think, this is stuff that I kind of came up with Mm -hmm. years later. So I never really thought about it in that way as I was doing it. But I think uh, part of my approach was because I did have an analysis that told me that there is a way to change things. Mm-hmm. That changed what I wanted to say to people, right? So a lot of the groups that were considered political, like some of them are my friends, so, um, but they've heard me say this before. But a lot of the folks that came out around the same time that are considered political, they were very much about being angry, right? right? And, and um, and and I knew from the, the organizing I had done that that's not the thing that makes people get involved with things. Right, right. That's something that makes people feel like there's nothing they can do. Right, and and that this right. is just they can express themselves. So it cha- my analysis of what was it was going to take, uh, what kind of movement we needed to build, changed how I came at people, and then other folks had ideas that. You know, it was simply a behavior problem. So Mm -hmm. they have songs like, you know, uh, telling people to change their attitude, change how they act, get serious, blah, blah, blah. And some of them are celebrated songs. Right. Mm -hmm. And so but my thing was always like. This is what's wrong. We could change it. Let's go do it. You are. And also, you already agree with me. Right. and and so that and, the, and, and and so that's always been the thing i've never tried to feel make something where i 'm you know opening you up to some new world. Mm-hmm. if that happens, cool, but I, I I think that the ideas that we need to act upon are ones that are so uh so much a part of just being a human being, right. that if you can express them in a certain way. So our first album was very much a pamphlet on tape. Mm. Like, I think, you know, like, I was really excited to do it, and so a lot of my stuff was like name checking, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Che Guevara, Mao Zedong, you know, uh, you know, showing that I knew this about that mm-hmm. movement or whatever. Right. And, um, and I realized, you know, I realized, just from also touring afterward, like the, how much it was, some of it was effective, but how much it wasn't effective. And, and I realized all that I was doing with that was gathering people around that already mm-hmm. agreed with me. And so I, I um, you know, I started taking the, the tact of like, for instance, I think in, since the first album, you know, in that 20-something years, I've only used the word capitalism one time. Mm. And I've only used, uh, I don't even, I've used the word communist once. Um, and, and, and the point was, is that I'm trying to get to um, how we interact with the system. And what, where, what that journey is as we not only interact with the system, but figure out, how to change it, right? Right. And so that I think that that's why it ends up not feeling "quote unquote" preachy, right? Right.
1: Yeah. You also come from a different background. I mean, you think about what it means to have started out as an organizer and then moved into the into the art, but always having a foot in the art. I mean, there's all these examples, really bad examples. I won't name names, um, of activists, intellectuals who try to make try to sort of say, well, you know, hip-hop is a way to maybe reach the masses and they make these really bad records, because that's not their thing. Um, as opposed to, you know, I'm not naming anybody. But in your case, you come out of an organizer's background, and, you know, you all succeed in being able to bring along people who are not necessarily trying to listen to, to so-called conscious rap. I mean well,
0: you know, you have the to, Bay Area
1: has I mean in the Bay Area you have a, a follow, you had a following mm-hmm. of people who, you know, just love the coup.
0: Yeah, I think um, part of it is, you know, you have to respect the art mm-hmm. that you're doing, right? Like I can't just decide I wanna you know, like you know, that I wanna uh, get computer scientists to become revolutionary and teach a class at school mm-hmm. about it without right figuring, you know, without doing some study and, and really loving what I'm doing, right? And so, and I think I went through that period too. Like, uh, uh, you know, I became more of an artist, mm-hmm. I think, after the first album. I, you know, I, I knew some of this idea, uh, but but I think you have to master your art. You have to master what you're doing. You you have to know the language you're speaking, right? right. And... um. And so I, I, I think that's a big part of it. But I think it's also connected to the feeling that I want to give. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't want to give a feeling of dread. I don't I don't think that that is the feeling that says we're going to transform mm-hmm. the system. You know, I, I, I wanted to give emotional, uh, get emotional responses that have to do with, with hopefulness. So they that that has to do with why um, some of the songs are you know might seem comedic, right. And it has to do with why some of the songs are dance songs. Mm. Um, you were, we were told early on that our mute that we didn't make political music. Somebody said that in some review. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> because we weren't sounding like right. the bomb squad. Right. Exactly. Right? Interesting. And um, and who I love, but that was a certain kind of sound that was yeah. chaos and you know, it said a one, th- it said a particular thing. Right. And I was wanting to capture other, other things that I thought were revolutionary, that I thought were things that, that, that inspired people to be involved in organizations. And um, some of that is, you know, um, has to do with the signifying of, of sounds that people already see as their own, mm-hmm. right? And they see mm-hmm. as belonging to the community, right? So for instance, um, and, 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 but, but, but the, which got us, which made us have less traction with critics at first. Cause like, if you, if you wanna look at, um, I, I remember in one issue of the source, which is the hip hop mm-hmm. magazine, they called Ice Cube's uh, album Death Certificate gangster rap, mm-hmm. right, and right. they called, uh, I think it was like Black Sheep or something, was conscious, right. but Black Sheep was talking about pimping women, right. and, but they used jazz samples,
2: right.
0: <laughs> they used jazz samples, which is thought of intellectually superior, and Ice Cube used the blues aesthetic, right. the blues and funk aesthetic, that, that signified the idea that certain people were going to be listening to this, that black people right. were going to be listening to this. Right. The truth is, is with all this music, you know, anything you sell in the U.S., it's mainly white people that are consuming right. it.
1: Exactly.
0: But the perception was that that was, some, that was gangster because it had a certain, a blues aesthetic to it. And, um, and, and so because our music... Didn't always fit into the category of being, uh, what you know, where the music sounded like it was trying to be highbrow. Right. Um, it wasn't recognized at first. It took right. a few albums for it. to Well, get I know recognized the Death them.
1: Certificate was was Ice Cube's attempt. At, that was his master work. That was the thing that he felt like he broke out of what he was doing before and didn't get the respect. I mean, and so much that that that's an amazing record. Oh yeah. Um, so let's step back for a second and um, I'd really like to hear from you just your thoughts about the impact that your art has had on, on movements and, and on people and, and I mean really pull the camera back to include like Sorry to Bother You for example and some of the other works that you did or by the way um, tell Homeland Security um, where the bomb is available for sale after this event make sure you don't leave this place without a copy Really, seriously, because that's also another really important work of art. But just what impact has your art had on people?
0: Well, Pittsburgh? I mean, um, so this is, this is a question that I'm always asking myself and I've gone through various bouts of depression and wondering whether at, at, very, at different times in my life, wondering whether... Uh, because I originally thought I was just going to do two albums and be out and back to organizing. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, I quit after the second album when we did the Young Comrades. Um, and, but but anyway, so I um, would sorry to bother you, for instance. Uh, it, but 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 I, I I I get inspired when people tell me when, when I was involved in the Occupy Oakland uh, movement. A lot of the people that were coming there were like look, I got involved with stuff because right. your music led me to other organizations to try to find organizations that I could be involved in. Mm-hmm. Or look, um, you know, um, we had this, this uh, all-night poster-making party and everybody wanted to leave, but we, we, we turned on your music and it, you know, mm-hmm. made us think that this was the thing to do. Or, um, you know, or... or um, there was a First Nations tribe in Canada that I guess had a shootout um, with, with uh, police. And this I, I don't know when this was because the, the, the chief had come up to me at a concert we did and they, he told me the story that they had the shootout that, that lasted for days hmm. and, um, and that they eventually, they all got cleared of everything. Um, And he said, you know, we were scared for our lives and we had the coups, genocide, and Jews play Mm. on loop to make us uh, feel like we were doing the right thing. Um, uh, There are a a group of theater workers in Utah um, hit me up. Saying that they were forming a union, after seeing "Sorry to bother you." Uh, this was in Salt Lake City. they formed a union. Um, in Baltimore, uh, there was and I, I can't remember exactly, but somebody came and told me the story that w- where their job was, was unorganized, and they, you know, they had this big campaign that took, you know some time to where they all had a meeting, and they were going to have the vote on whether to have the union. Or not, and it was they were wondering what was going to happen, and right before it was time to put hands up or whatever, uh, or or I don't know what they did. Somebody yelled, EquiSapiens, let's be out!" <laughs> and then, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, so and then I, I, I see video of demonstrations where people are uh, playing cool music and you know doing art that may be inspired by it and and, and using those in demonstrations. So um, that that tells me that it's going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, I think sometimes I I do get, there is some frustration because I'll tour around sometimes and inevitably people will say, okay, I want to do something. What organization should I join?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And sometimes there is no nobody around them in that area you know they have to go online or something like that and or or i'm or i'm not just knowledgeable enough about what's going on in that area to do that so there is some disconnect between that but i've had a lot of stories of people coming and saying that they've gotten involved in in radical politics uh uh because of right. my music so right. um that that's I, you know, I don't have any way to measure that, but yeah, I often think because before I got into music, um, because I did have this idea that I thought that the folks that were in radical organizations, a lot of them were pretty antisocial, and they, you know, they'd be in arguments that they didn't need to be in and you know not really know how to communicate this idea or that idea, And I thought of my art as being one-on-one communication. Right. I don't think it's that anymore because it takes practice. But I, I thought of that as my art, and I thought of that as a worthwhile endeavor to figure out how to do that in, in, in you know, in the service of building a movement. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, that you know, because of that, I, you know, there were little things that told me that I I, I had certain skills that would lead to good. Uh, to being a good community organizer. So I always i am wondering, like, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, and, and so those stories help me some. But I, I do think there is still a big gap between connecting art to social movements, mm-hmm. right? There are people that go see Sorry to Bother You and wonder, like, how am I going to get involved in something? Right. And, you know, there's nothing... Or, you know, in, pl- in some cases there is something, but, mm-hmm. um, so we need, you know, I think, and, and I think those social movements getting bigger, radical, they're, they're becoming a radical a militant labor movement, right. uh, with, you know, that, that is explicit in its radical vision. Right. One that can withhold labor, um, a- as a tactic for a, a larger, that, that, that will then turn into an even more radical movement, I think that will create the artists mm-hmm. that we need right, you know
1: right right speaking of which, so in terms of creating the artists we need, I want to quote read a quote. From I want to
0: ask you a couple questions because right. <laughs> because when I, I I think about this, you know um, there there's some uh, with, with my artistic career, there's mm-hmm. some f- failures and some successes. Mm-hmm. And I will say that I think Sorry to Bother You is my, my biggest hit success, mm-hmm. you know, where people are getting this mm-hmm. idea right. in a big way. Yes, but yes, 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 yes. There, <laughs> but a, a lot of my ideas about what can be have come from reading people like you and, and Thank books that you've read. Like, I didn't know about Harry Haywood mm-hmm. till I read, you know, till I read Race Rebels.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, not Harry Haywood. Yeah, Harry Haywood. Yeah, I mis- um, and um, I didn't, you know, uh, all, uh, many of these things kind of tie what's going on to w- what could mm-hmm. be. And especially, um, you know, uh, working uh, for me in, in, the, in the black community, and there being times when people are very, uh, w- w- where other organizers that may come from different political backgrounds, um, you know, definitely poo-poo the I, you know, uh, cl- class analysis mm-hmm. and right. things, right? So, so those much. are those were very important to me in political arguments with people mm-hmm. and, and kind of you know uh, confirming that maybe I'm on the right path. Now with all of this movement that's been happening that, that over the past century, I'd be interested to, to, to know like, where are times where, where artists that either have come out from those movements or been affected by those movements have like made that big connection. Right. They made the, the, the revolutionary pop song or the radical this or that and, and it had some effect in helping to build a movement.
1: Right, right. That's a really good question. It's a hard question because um, you know, the moments that we tend to hold up, which I think are worth holding up, like in the 1960s and 70s for example, if you think about the Black Arts Movement, unlike the Harlem Renaissance the artists who came out of the Black Arts Movement in Chicago and New York and the Bay Area and LA in Atlanta, um, Detroit, they made a commitment to move um, creative work from downtown venues from um, the high art areas into community venues. I mean, people like, you know, Marie Evans and Sonia Sanchez and Baraka uh, Hakim um you know, these were folks who were not trying to make a lot of money. Um, they gave up a lot. I mean, Baraka could be rich I mean, when he came out of the village, he, he had an OB award, he could have done whatever he wanted to do but made a certain choice to move into spaces, community uh, centers, church basements, and musicians who are making all this really creative music, challenging music, avant-garde music, were doing so in like parks. Like LA is a really good example where Horace Tapscott and the black arts sort of explosion in the 1960s, you know, you had more artists per square mile in Watts in the 1960s after the rebellion than maybe any other place in all of the United States. And these were sculptors and painters and musicians doing challenging work with and in the community. And the funny thing is that two things happened. One, you get um, some of these uh, projects were supported by federal money, you know, um, war on poverty money. And more federal money was used by through, by supporting the FBI to destroy these organizations. You know? So you have like two sides of the federal government, basically you know, one waging a certain kind of soft war and one waging a hard war. Um, but those are moments, I think, that where you really do see a connection. But these were also movements that had like real, real flaws. Uh, flaws in terms of gender politics, flaws in terms of, um, in some respects, class politics, Uh, But we, I mean, it's to be expected. I I wouldn't beat them down for that. I mean, that's part of what, um, part of the lessons of those struggles. So so for me, there are moments, but I can't speak to any kind of moment in which I would say they were like, you know, what we think of as like major success. I mean, the irony is that um, those moments of connection between mass movements, grassroots movements, local movements, and art making also end up being appropriated by Hollywood studios. You know, that's the moment mm-hmm. when black is hot, mm-hmm. you know, or brown is hot. And then we end up, not maybe not us in this room, but you know, but we end up being lulled into believing that um, this is a great time for black people on television because we see more faces. The great time would be, you know, and this goes back to the question I'm going to ask you. Um, <laughs> is how do we move from representation to struggle to movement? And I, I, I'm going to read this. So you gave this amazing, powerful, gauntlet-throwing speech at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And you said, even when we make films that attempt to address the problems that are around us, we don't have anywhere to point, to point people. So a lot of times it ends at, here's the problem, the end. And that's because we as artists haven't been connected to movements that are looking at how we actually change things and where power lies. That's changing now. So my question is, that's changing now. Can you elaborate? What needs to be done? What okay. is changing now?
0: Well, I think what's one, one thing that's changing now is our, our collective perception of where each other are at, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that... Um, you have uh, you 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 have even right wing think tanks coming out with polls showing that fifty one percent of millennials uh, want a socialist society in the U S. Right. Um, and that was like with four thousand people. It, you have uh, like the uh, Gallup, not Gallup, something else starts with right, the G, huh? Well, okay, one of those big polls. Anyway, that's like. Uh, of all ages want a socialist society, Mm -hmm. right? You have, um, you have, uh, strikes people doing wildcat strikes, like the the teachers are Mm -hmm. just on it. Exactly. And, um, you have, I mean, one of the things is when I was involved in Occupy Oakland, um, I sometimes became the de facto spokesperson just because whatever. And, um, they'd be like, what do you think about all these uh, black blocks destroying uh, destroying property and busting windows or whatever? And um, the thing that I was asked not to say, which I could probably say now, is that it wasn't. It was the nurses, right? (laughs) The nurses are fucking fired up,
2: right? And
0: they're putting posters on windows and Mm -hmm. fucking shit up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, there's a there there's a, a there's a radicalness mm. and there's a willingness towards militancy that's happening. I don't the, the, the organization overall is not there. But I think not only is are these things happening, because we could point to waves that happen over the past, you know, decades where that happens, but this is one where um, right now the media can't even wipe over it and say that it doesn't exist. I, al- I already knew that people were way more radical than right. what the media told us. Um, but I, 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 when we had our uh, album cover for Party Music. It was before 9-11, and uh, it had the World Trade Center blowing up. Okay. And... It was a big controversy, not because of the album cover, but because uh, I used that time to point out that the U.S. had just been found guilty of orchestrating the killing of 19,000 people in Central America. Right, and right, so right. that's why they couldn't use the, the uh, right. whatever, the World Court. So
1: do you, it, I think make sure people understand this, that the picture was taken before 9-11. Yeah. So, do you understand that Right. OK, and that's really important. And yeah. that's and then they end up. Holding yeah. Up and the so power. then
0: I ended up. But but anyway, so we're going to. So we have so we had also got this tour that was not our tour. Mm-hmm. That was not the Coups tour. So it wasn't going to be the Coups fans. It was actually an MTV sponsored tour for this group called the Executioners who had a song with Linkin Park. Mm-hmm. So it was all Linkin Park fans going to be and it's advertised by MTV and we were opening up for it a few months after 9-11 wow. in the middle of this, you know, controversy. And I had band members that are like, I know you're going to say, say something again. Cause they were already uh, against the bombing of Afghanistan. I know it. And we're going to get shot.
2: <laughs> I'm not
0: going with you. So we, I had to get subs <laughs> subs in the band. Right. They're like, you know, we might get wow. killed. And sure enough, because we, we, we were touring places like Montana,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Utah, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Florida, uh, Ohio, all these places that we were told you see on the news and everybody's like, bomb Afghanistan, right? And so I even thought, okay, I'm going to be coming up against some, you know, pushback. But I, at every show, I'd stop the music, and um, I'd read a statement from a friend of mine, Jeremy Glick, whose father mm-hmm. had died in 9-11, and I, I'd say that there should be no bombing of Afghanistan and no war for oil in our name. And the reaction I got was more up, right. up, right. more of an up. An uproar of applause in that. Right, right, at right. every single place in Texas, mm-hmm. in Montana, in Arizona, because the truth mm-hmm. was, is that people weren't for going to war. Right. You know, no matter how they felt about 9-11 and who they thought did it and all that kind of right. stuff, people weren't for going to war. But the media was all about telling us, The media is all about telling you that you are the most radical person in the room. Or you are the most radical person you know. Mm-hmm. So mitigate the things you might say. Mitigate what you might ask for or want or try to build for. And the thing is, is that, you know, we just we happen to be in a place where we're able to be. We're, we're able to uh, to to say, like, no, people are much more radical than that. Right. So we're at a different time. However, we need that organization. People are, you know, especially young radicals are afraid of organization um, and 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 are resistant to it. I I can't you know, one thing I did learn, though, in Occupy Oakland, because I came into it as like I've been doing this Mm -hmm. right in my my head. And there were a lot of things that were done that I wouldn't have.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I went along with because there's people doing it, right. people involved. And I want people to be involved with stuff. But I didn't think it was going to work. Mm. You know, one of them was, you know, uh, something that happened and we had gotten like the, a guy had, that was in the military. had gotten shot by the police with right, a canister. Inside, right. So all of these, the, the media from all over the world were in town. And that's when we had a three thousand people general assembly. And everybody was like, "Let's strike! Let's call for a general strike in one week." Mm -hmm. And from me being involved in stuff, I was like, "Okay, that's just—we're just making a statement. Nothing is going to happen in that week." But sure, Mm -hmm. let's let's do it. You know, but I was very skeptical. And fifty thousand people came out, Mm -hmm. and it shut down the port. And they came out under a banner of "Death to Capitalism," Mm -hmm. right? And it was definitely much more. It wasn't exactly a general strike, but it was, it was pretty a pretty big thing. And um, my point is, is that I realize there we get trapped in these ideas of what we think will work because we've been build, we've been building a body of knowledge, and that's important, that's scientific to do that. But um, the one thing that anarchists Taught me, of which I'm not an anarchist, but the one thing that, that they taught, that taught me was like, sometimes you don't know what the fuck is gonna happen. Right. Right. And, and you can push for something, and you can, sometimes we're not recognizing the new time that we're mm-hmm. in, and we're not, you know, taking advantage of that. And, 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 and I think, and so I think that new time is that people are. People are wanting these ideas. There's a mandate out there, mm-hmm. um, so in art, it's there. Like, there, there, you know. I I do meet with other film companies and production companies, and they say like one third of the proposals for a while are like it's kind of like sorry to bother you, right? <laughs> and but the so the point is is but the the thing is 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 that. We have to have movements and organizations that um, are, are, are building something with a foreseeable victory. Right. Right? And I think that that has to be... I, I think that, as I've always said, that I don't, I don't think, you know, elections are enough, and I don't think elections are the thing that changes power. If you have a movement, mm-hmm. if you... If you, if you have a movement, um, uh, if, you, if, if we can build a mass, militant, radical labor movement, which is very possible right now, mm-hmm. um, that can withhold labor, that can stop profit, then we can control the puppeteers. Mm-hmm. Right? And those puppeteers will make the puppets dance however we want them to. Right. Right? And if we don't have a movement like that, then everything that you could possibly gain from an election is going to dwindle right. away. Exactly. The base of power under capitalism, you know, is capital. But we, we have control of that capital right. if we're organized. Right. right. And, 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 and so also the danger is, is that there is kind of a new labor movement sparkling up, but if it becomes just a trade union movement, mm-hmm. uh, that that won't be enough power either. People, people are, the average everyday person is inspired by a radical vision mm-hmm. right now. Right. They want something that, that says that what I'm doing, you want me to be involved in your movement. I want to know how it's part of the big story. Right. 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 No,
1: and, and I agree with you totally. Um, I, I also wonder, you know, cause I've heard this from other people. How do we reconcile the fact that, um, Everywhere you went, you got uh, enormous support for an anti-war position. Um, uh, This was February 2003. Many people in this room, in fact, were out in the streets protesting the US invasion of Iraq. Yeah. The biggest anti-war protest in the history. Millions of people. Right, millions. Um, And then we have this, we have this sort of radical insurgency. It's very clear, it's dynamic, it's mass. And here we are having this conversation under um, the Trump regime. How do we get there? In other words, um, you know, so many of the movements that, that mm-hmm. emerged, but uh, 2011 was a, was a dynamic moment around the world. And now we have a world where right-wing authoritarianism is becoming dominant. Now, I'm not saying that that's the end, And I, I actually totally agree with what with the, with the anarchists call generative temporality, that is, that you, know, you don't even know what's gonna happen. You've got to be in it to make it happen. And I really do believe that. But I just do, do wanna play a little devil's advocate. Like, what do we, what do, how do we get here, and what do we do?
0: Well, okay, I'm um, trying to figure out how to not be as long-winded as I really wanna Oh, be. no, you got um, to, this.
1: this is your show, man. <laughs> no.
0: Okay. I think that since the new left, mm-hmm. uh, the left has gone, has has gone away from class struggle, and, and and focused on, and 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 focused on spectacle. And that's had a lot of detrimental effect to what our movements are and how. And, and let me explain this. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to use. I'm going to be very general here and, you know, whatever. But, so be, I'm going to centralize. But in the 20s and 30s, you had, uh, according to the, the documentary, uh, Seeing Red, you had, mm-hmm. in the 20s and 30s, you had a million card-carrying communists mm-hmm. all together. Right? At the same time, you had militant strikes going on in in. Colorado and Alabama, Montana, you had at that same time. And and some of those strikes were involving shootouts Mm -hmm. between, you know, corporate hired uh, guards and the workers. You had at the same time in the Midwest, you had workers occupying factories. You had on the West Coast, you had the longshoremen who were thought of to be unorganizable thought of to be less skilled than custodians thought of to be less organizable because they're at like all of these different sites and there's a high turnover they were getting you get fired every Mm -hmm. couple weeks or whatever that was unorganizable they were having a militant strike up and down the west coast that involved the militia coming out
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and fighting them and they were successful in that you had at that same time Uh, But but unrelated, you had the bonus march happening where veterans of World War One hadn't got their bonus checks yet. And they marched, some of them armed on the White House and were met by General McCarthy. That's when he started getting famous because he met them with tanks. Right. Right. Um, Now, the uh, it was in that milieu. and, And mind you, there were revolutions happening all over the world. But in that milieu, that we actually got the New Deal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because people were like, we got to put all our effort into getting FDR in. It was because there was something that could have turned into a real revolutionary movement. It was that, it was that big, it was that widespread, and it was that radical. The, you know, the, the, At that time, uh, the FBI thought of uh, Alabama and Utah as hotbeds of communist activity.
1: Well, well they, they were. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> right.
0: Those states that are now red, their grandparents were actually red. Right. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so it was right. in that milieu that, that that happened. Now, soon after that, um, you had what was called the United States against fascism and what that meant internationally obviously many of you know mm. was uh, the Soviet Union UK and US joining together to get rid of Hitler what that meant for radicals in the US has come down from the common turn was while the US is fighting Hitler they can't be afraid of a root revolution happening in the US while the military is away so the answer to that was the biggest radical organization in the United States, which was the Communist Party, USA, went underground. So during that movement before, not only was it militant where you had these strikes, but the leaders of it were calling for revolution. We're saying this is part of a larger revolutionary movement, which I think is part of what made them more popular. Right. Um, so now all of a sudden. These radicals were not radical anymore. They weren't revolutionary anymore. They were progressive. And. They didn't tell you who they were all the way. And this was in the 40s. So they suspended the party at some point. Yeah. yeah. And so and so a few years later, you have the McCarthy era where they could point at those same people and say, that person's a radical that person's a revolutionary that person's a communist and they have been lying to you and that part could be true mm-hmm. right where had, had it been 12 years before they'd be like i know <laughs> they helped they told they were telling me about revolution as they were helping me get my you know move my furniture back in while the the cops were moving it out, right? Or the, you know, when we did that work stoppage, the, these things like that. So, because of that, and uh, because of the, be, because of the non-action or non-critique of the, of because of that, and because of non-action and non-critique from uh, you, uh, revelations about Stalin, um, communist party broke up into all these little organizations in the 50s, which soon in the 60s became the beginning of the new left. The new left, again, I'm essentializing everything, but the new left uh, took on a new tact. They weren't going to be like the previous period before. They were like, fuck you. I'm a revolutionary. Fuck you. I'm a communist. Fuck you. I'm a radical. Right. The thing was, is that they focused on cities and universities and what you can't do this a strike at a university is not the same as a strike Mm -hmm. at a factory um it's not it doesn't have the same relationship to power and so it became in the 60s about getting people onto the street Mm -hmm. whereas in the 20s they were getting people on the street they'd have 20s and 30s, they'd have demonstrations of 10, 20, 30,000 people, different things like that. But the difference was it was an actual demonstration of something. It was a demonstration of power. It was like these 10,000 people that work in your industry are going to shut it down tomorrow unless you do this. Right. It was connected to actual an actual material point of power starting in the 60s you know, uh, it, it became spectacle getting people into the street. And I'm a child of that way of thinking to where I've been part of demonstrations and we'll have ten, 20,000 people out, be part of something. And peop- the new people are like, yeah, what next? Right. And we're like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> lift your voice. <laughs> Let your voice be heard. And in that way, we are also selling folks an incorrect idea of how power works. Mm -hmm. Right. We're we're telling people that all you have to do is let it be known that you don't like this. You know, like maybe if we get millions of people out on the street, we can stop the Iraq war. Right. And of course, it doesn't do it. It doesn't do it because that's not how power works. You power is related to capital, and you, it, the people have the power to shut that down. And that's, what, that's what, 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 what it responds to. But since, I'll say that, since the 60s, a lot of what we've been focusing on has been, you know, with that new tact where, where, where there, it, it hasn't been about class struggle. Again, I said I'm essentializing. There are definitely examples in the 60s where some of those students were like we're gonna go go into the factories yeah we're going to go into the factories mm -hmm. we're going to do that but this is for the most part and we have our idea of what a movement is when we say a movement we all picture different things based on what we've read about what we've seen on tv what we've seen around us recently and so uh, the left doesn't have a base of power the right does it's the same thing with, with the music, with the, you know, the groups with the African medallions. They don't have a, a, a material base in power, but the people singing about selling dope, there's a material base of power right there. So, so the, the, the right wing has the capitalist class and capitalism to back them up mm-hmm. and the way capitalism works right now. And we need to have you know, that movement to, to back up anything we're doing. But one of the other ways that it went from people in the street is that that first thing we got millions of people in the street turned into a pro carry movement. Right. 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 Turned into a pro carry movement. And you had folks like that were my friends like IndependentVoter.org, or whatever. They had pamphlets out lying to people saying carry, saying Bush is for war. Kerry is against war as a way to get the anti-war movement to support Kerry. Right. right? And the thing is, is that that's what happens in elections is you have to sell it as this person is the be all end all. It'd be different if like this person fits into our overall plan in this way. Mm -hmm. But we're selling things as in that's what happens and that changes, uh, you know, Uh, Then uh, anti-war movement dissipated for years and then came back up again just in time for electing Obama. My family was very involved in uh, the Obama movement. The arguments we'd have would be like we're creating this network of people. And it was definitely a grassroots network. There was a lot of good people on the ground, like doing stuff in phone banks and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and canvassing Day after the election, it's over with. Right. Right? Because this person is the be-all, end-all.
1: And who they elect, someone who's also supporting war.
0: Yeah. So anybody that you're electing, you're going to, yeah, exactly. Nobody was, 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 a lot of people were, that had spent all that time Mm -hmm. organizing to get him in didn't want to say anything. Right. But, right, because he was the be-all, end-all. Now, the thing is, is that if you have a movement that can, that can shut down industry, you can make any politician do what you want them to do. If you feel that getting somebody in there that's more aligned with those thoughts in the first place will help, that's cool. But the, the, the selling it like mm-hmm. that's the end, right? That's the thing that kills the movements that we need. Right,
1: right. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, we got one minute and 26 seconds left. Um, so, because we could talk about this all night. We've, there's so many things. Yeah. Even the issue about socialism um, really deserves a real discussion because there are people who, as you know, would support socialism but not class struggle. You know, in other words, it's socialism in their, in their vision is simply a kind of... Well, that's because they don't, don't do.
0: understand the fact that that class struggle is going to be going on, right? whether, the, whether we have uh, a militant labor right. movement or not. But if you think of socialism we're gonna is, lose.
1: as just the New Deal, restoring the New Deal without the racist policies, then that's not socialism. I and mean, that's part of the issue. What does it mean to have power, uh, working people's power? Anyway, so that's, yeah. that's for another conversation. So I that, mean, you could just
0: point to France. Mm-hmm. Where they've got a lot of the stuff that that is being claimed to be really radical here they've got that and they still need a revolution mm. right yes any any of those countries in, in Europe so far be it from me to say obviously you know I, you know the, these are these are reforms right. that would lift a burden off of everyone absolutely right um, but <laughs> the question is how do we Go for more. Okay. So, last last
1: question, just to be short, um, people of course are dying to know what's next. Uh, are we talking about a film "Equusapiens in Power"? You know, um, <laughs> you know, free all the worry free inmates. You know, problems socialist transformation. Um, what's and of course you don't have to say too much because of yeah. course I know you're trying to keep some stuff in your so pocket.
0: So I'm uh, I'm writing a, Yeah, I won't talk about the content of them, but. You know, um, I have deals in place for I'm doing, I, I, I'm making a TV show, a pilot that I just finished, and I'm writing three features. Mm-hmm. But none of them are, they're not, it's not a, a, an extension of the same story I have. After waiting all this time and making a, making movies in mm-hmm. my 40s, I have a lot of ideas backed mm-hmm. up. So um, doing those and, and then also hoping to help Other uh, radical filmmakers get their movies made, um, and hoping to, um, in a local sense, in the Bay Area, um, help uh, keep that film movement going. um, That's happening. That's starting there. Um, But yeah, that's the idea: is to make more radical films, to to find other filmmakers. Mm And, and help them get their films made. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, basically, bring back the Hollywood 10.
1: Right. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> well, before we, be, before we give Booth one more final thank you, um, two things. One is don't leave without getting his book.
0: It's back and don't there. leave without. I, well, I, I, they've got a them. bunch of Robin D.G. Kelly books yeah, yeah, out can, there that, are, and you can are, get
1: that too. Um, and also, are very well.
0: I mean, they're not only you know written well in the academic sense because that's boring, but they're they're good to read. I mean, they're, they're they're written beautifully. There's a few writers that that can do that. That can pull that off. Well, we're know? gonna
1: we're gonna collaborate on a movie one day as it's going to happen. And, and at one point, Boots is going to put my wife, Lisa Gay Hamilton, in one of his movies. So, <laughs> anyway, thanks again. All right. Thank you
0: for having me. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galeano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticat, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.